The Post has a new destination for authentic travel. Check out By the Way for local guides to the world's top travel spots. There's more to see at WashingtonPost.com slash travel. Hey, I'm Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to this special episode of Cape Up. Over the past two months, you've heard our Voices of the Movement series about the civil rights movement. If you haven't, please go back and listen. Today, I'm turning the focus to the movement that emulated the strategies of the black civil rights movement to expand the boundaries of equality and acceptance. Fifty years ago today, June 28, 1969, a typical police raid of a gay bar in Manhattan's Greenwich Village led to an atypical response from the people inside. They fought back, and by doing so, they ushered in the modern LGBTQ civil rights movement. The events of that day and the history that followed are chronicled by Charles Kaiser, author of The Gay Metropolis, The Landmark History of Gay Life in America. Hear him talk about what gay life was like in 1960s New York, how things have progressed, and what needs to be done to counter the anti-LGBTQ backlash today, right now. Charles Kaiser, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here. So I couldn't imagine a more perfect person to talk to about New York City, 1969, and that fateful weekend 50 years ago. But before we get into the specifics of of that of those nights, talk about what gay life was like in New York City at that time. Gay life in New York City, as it was in the rest of the United States and indeed the rest of the Western world, was invisible to everyone except those participating in it. So that meant you could find another gay person if you knew the address of a gay bar, like the Stonewall Inn, or you knew a location in Central Park where people like yourself, probably the Ramble, might be interested in meeting someone else. But generally speaking, if you were a gay person, you did everything in your capacity to keep it a secret from your friends, from your family, and from anyone else who wasn't gay. And, you know, legend has it, and I'm old enough to remember um, sort of the remnants of those years when those sort of signals and things were still there. How did gay people, uh, gay men in particular, identify themselves to each other? since everything was so closeted and so secretive? Mostly through knowing sidelong glances, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Not the carnation and the lapel or... Um, well, no, no. We were, about, we were about 60 years beyond the carnation period by then. <laughs> uh, there were, I suppose, already some people who paid attention to the color of the handkerchief in your left rear pocket of your blue jeans, but that really was more popular in the 1970s. Right. Uh, it was really just a question of, you know, inborn gaydar and trying to figure it out. I do remember when I was an undergraduate at Columbia being cruised on the subway invariably by men I wasn't interested in, which was very disappointing. <laughs> that is a perennial, perennial thing. <laughs> a perennial problem. <laughs> Depending, no matter the decade. So, Charlie, even though, <laughs> even though the laws made being gay illegal, New York City was still a mecca for, for gay people, wasn't it? It was a huge mecca just because there were more of us here than there were anywhere else. The proportions 
The percentages may have already been higher in San Francisco, but the gross numbers have always been largest in New York City, I would say, in the last uh, hundred years anyway. So yes, it was very much a mecca. It was very much a place where if you met the right people, and especially if you were in the rich gay life, you could have a very exciting life that was uh, unimpeded by the police or anybody else. Mm-hmm. And whether you were a, a rich gay or, or a poor gay, um, the way society manifested its disapproval of gay people was um, was every, was everywhere. Can you talk about some of the ways um, that disapproval manifested itself? What were the crimes? Well, the first and most important way it manifested itself in the 1950s was when Dwight Eisenhower signed an executive order right at the beginning of his administration, which was the first time, really, that gay people were banned from employment by the federal government and also from employment by all of its contractors, a horrendous episode, which is described in the new must-see documentary, The Lavender Scare, which has just opened in theaters and will be on PBS shortly. Uh, But it also was reflected in the way these questions were covered in the liberal media, a famous story on the front page of the New York Times, which said growth of homosexuality causes growing concern, quoting the moral leaders of New York City over the uh, fears that this was suddenly visible. If you were walking up and down Third Avenue, there were people who even a straight person might assume was gay. Uh, this was something which Abe Rosenthal, the then new Metropolitan editor, had noticed on his return from Japan, and he was horrified by how obvious homosexuality had become in his hometown. So he immediately wrote an article which advocated eliminating it. And then Mike Wallace followed up on CBS with an early CBS documentary called The Homosexuals, which was actually quite mixed. I mean, it had a lot of anti gay stuff in it. But on the other hand, it began with a very attractive, blonde, young man saying, I'm gay and I'm all right with that, which was undoubtedly the first time 30 million people had seen such a thing on primetime television in America. So there's this tiny little, there are tiny little steps towards visibility in the mid-60s, but not in the workplace anywhere. There are no openly gay reporters or really anything. When Merrill Miller comes out on the front page of the New York Times Magazine in 1971, he's the first writer to do that. He was a famous journalist and novelist, and he got letters from lawyers who said, if I follow your example, I'll lose all my clients. And doctors said, I'll lose all my patients. And Broadway producers said, I'll never be able to raise another dime if anybody knows I'm gay. Let me take you back to that Eisenhower executive order, because as you were talking about that uh, and what it did in terms of banning uh, gay people from federal employment, it made me think of Frank Kameny, the late Frank Kameny. Is that the executive order that pushed him, speaking of visibility, to picket in front of the White House with other um, gay men and lesbians uh, to picket in front of the White House back then? It certainly is. And Frank Kameny, a Washington resident for most of his life, is by far the single most important person in the history of the gay movement, not only because of what he did 
in taking on the federal government, but also because he was really the very first person to sit down and read the psychiatric literature and say, this is just garbage in, garbage out. This is just prejudice disguised as pseudoscience. And he had to do two things once he'd reached that conclusion. He had to convince the Washington and New York Mattachine Societies, which were the earliest gay rights groups of the early 1960s, to adopt resolutions saying just because you're gay doesn't mean that you're sick. Because up until this time, even at places like the Mattachine Society, it was very common at Mattachine meetings for them to invite psychiatrists to the meeting to explain to all the members that the only way they could become healthy would be if they became straight. So he had to convince gay people, first of all, that they weren't sick. And then the same Frank Kameny led the campaign to remove homosexuality from the list of disorders from the American Psychiatric Association. And that was the most important victory of all in 1973. And to give you an idea of how difficult that was, the first time he could find a psychiatrist to speak at a national meeting of the APA, I think it was in 1971, the gay psychiatrist was willing to lobby his colleagues, but only if he was allowed to wear a mask while delivering this speech. Hmm. You know, one of one of the things, uh, one of my fondest memories of my first years in Washington was meeting this older, cantankerous uh, man named Frank Kameny at at a few events here in Washington. And of course, there's a street named for him here in Washington. And his pickets and placards and posters and papers and pictures are all at the Smithsonian now. Let's come back to New York, New York City, Charlie, and talk about, uh, I was asking you before about gay life in New York at the time. Uh, and you had mentioned earlier uh, how, you know, if you're a gay person in New York and you if you knew the address of a uh, of a bar um, where you could meet uh, other gay people, that's where you would go. What was the role of the mob in gay bars back then? Well, generally speaking, the bars were most frequently owned by the mob. And the mob not only owned the bars, but also arranged the weekly payoffs to the local police precinct to limit the number of raids of the premises. But really, almost all of commercial gay life was controlled by the mob in the early 1960s. And so then these raids that were were made on, on gay bars, they weren't sort of they were regular and they happened, but there wasn't a set timetable or schedule. I'm just wondering, there seemed to be selective enforcement of these laws uh, against homosexuality in New York City. Very selective. There was a tendency to uh, ramp them up before the World's Fairs, both in the 1939 and the 1964 World's Fairs. Politicians would announce that they were cleaning up the city in anticipation of all the tourists who were going to come to the World's Fair. And cleaning up the city meant arresting as many homosexuals as possible. It was really sort of a disgusting tradition. And how long would would uh, gay people arrested have to spend in jail? Was it a nominal amount of time or was it um, days or weeks or or months and loss of everything. I think, generally speaking, it was it tended to be only overnight. The problem was there were so many newspapers in New York and all across the country who would print the names of anybody who was arrested in one of these raids. And once your name was 
printed in the newspaper, the odds were enormous that you'd be fired from any job that you had in any profession. So that was what made it so devastating. Mm -hmm. So in your in your book, The Gay Metropolis, which how old is it now, Charlie? Is it 25 years old? The, it was fir first published in 1997, and I brought it up to date for the first time in 2007, and I've just written 18,000 right. words, a new preface, and a new final chapter to bring it to 2019 and to include all of the marriage equality decisions as well as Brokeback Mountain and Moonlight and mm -hmm. Queer as Folk, et cetera. Well, I, I mean, I, I bring up um, the book because when I read it in the first edition— um, and it's written in by decades. And for me, the decade on the 1960s was, for me, the most powerful um, and interesting and beautifully written of all of all the chapter of all the chapters. And you, it's my favorite too. Thank you. Well, it comes it comes through. I mean, Charlie, you and I have known each other for a long time, and you know, I'd read all of the other decades before reading the 60s because I thought, eh, what do I need to read the 60s for? I want to read the stuff <laughs> where I'll read about the people who I may have met and known and maybe I know some of the situations. And then I went to the 60s last. And that was when I thought, oh, my God, I'm so glad I went back to read the 60s <laughs> because knowing Charlie Kaiser is to know that the 60s were a very <laughs> important decade to him. But in this chapter, you talk about a lot of the things that happen um, in in America, not necessarily not only things that happen to the gay community, but you spend a lot of time talking about Judy Garland. Why why is Judy Garland important uh, in the story of the gay civil rights movement? When I began my uh, researches for this book, they, I knew nothing about Judy Garland, but I also knew that there were two things that I would have to cover in this book, and the first was the AIDS epidemic, and the second was Judy Garland, because she was the icon of a certain kind of uh, upper-middle-class white gay man in America in the 1950s. And I think it was partly because she was a brilliant artist who could really sing her heart out, and partly because she was the sort of person who, just when you thought she was completely down and out, she could still come back and have an amazing uh, triumph. And I think gay people uh, identified in part with her extremism and in part with her description. She said, I was just like Rocky Marciano, who was a famous uh, professional boxer. You can just, I, when I'm down, you know, I always come back for more. I think it was that part of her that was the biggest part of her appeal. Mm -hmm. And when she died in, in 1969, by then she is now known as um, Judy Minnelli. Minnelli requested that no one wear black to the funeral. James Mason began his eulogy at 1 o'clock on Friday, June 27th, and it was broadcast into the street by loudspeakers for the thousands who were lined up outside 1076 Madison Avenue. Uh, and then here's the key the key thing. You write, no one will ever know for sure which was the most important reason for what happened next. The freshness in their minds of Judy Garland's funeral or the example of all the previous rebellions of the 60s. Um, all that is certain is that 12 hours later, 12 hours after Garland's funeral, 
a handful of New York City policemen began a routine raid of a gay Greenwich Village night spot, and the drag queens, teenagers, lesbians, hippies, even the gay men in suits, behaved as no homosexual patrons had ever behaved before. What happened in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969? Well, what happened more than anything else is a cross-dressing lesbian named Stormy Delavari, one of my favorite people in this book and someone who I had the great honor of traveling to Berlin with for a gay pride after the book came out. Stormy says, the cop hit me and I hit him back. And she has the best description in my mind of what was really going on that evening when she says Stonewall was just the flip side of the Black Revolt when Rosa Parks took a stand. Finally, the kids down there took a stand, but it was peaceful. I mean, they said it was a riot. It was more like a civil disobedience. Noses got broken. There were bruises and banged up knuckles and things like that, but no one was seriously injured. The police got the shock of their lives when those queens came out of that bar and pulled off their wigs and went after them. I knew sooner or later people were going to get the same attitude that I had. They had just pushed once too often. And you have to remember what all of these people at that bar in 1969 had experienced the previous year in 1968, which was the greatest year of mayhem and upheaval in the history of the United States in the post-war period, starting with the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, followed by Gene McCarthy's near win as an anti-war candidate in New Hampshire, followed by Lyndon Johnson's stunning withdrawal from the presidential race at the end of March, which produces this huge surge of hope, which is destroyed four days later when Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated at the beginning of April, and then Bobby Kennedy is assassinated at the end of June, etc., etc. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've studied it, it is clear to me that the most important element in the success of the gay movement was the success and the example of the black civil rights movement. First of all, it was the incredible courage of everybody in the black civil rights movement who was willing to go out into the streets and get beaten up and get murdered in order to make America a more free place. So we had that incredible example in front of us. And I think having watched it for nine years throughout the 60s, the gay people in 1969 were finally ready to emulate their black brothers and sisters and fight back. But we must always remember that it was our black brothers and sisters who were the first to declare that not all power in the United States should belong to straight white Protestant men, which was pretty much the case up until 1960 when we elect our first Catholic president and John. Hi, I'm Hannah Sampson, a reporter for By the Way, the Washington Post's new destination for all your travel needs. Stay tuned after the show to hear more about how we'll help you get the most out of your next journey with guides from true locals around the world. Kennedy. Um, why do you, I'm glad you brought, brought this up about the, the connection between the black civil rights movement and, and the LGBT, what we now call the LGBT civil rights movement. That relationship between the black community and the gay community uh, in terms of wrapping our arms around the fact that what gay people were fighting for were civil rights. There's long been long been a tension um, from your vantage point as a journalist and a historian. Do you think that tension 
um, still exists or ha- has it uh, mellowed or softened or gone away over these last few decades, five decades? Uh, I think it still exists, but the crucial factor, which I write about a lot in the new book, is the fact that Barack and Michelle Obama were the first people to give the gay rights movement the same status, really, in public life as the black civil rights movement had enjoyed before then. And I do write that I think, here I say they were the first ones to give the full respect to the movement. Their willingness to link these two movements had a special power for me and others. It was the inspiration that we drew from the courage and the blood and the joyfulness of Frederick Douglass, Harriet Taubman, James Baldwin, Rosa Parks, John Lewis, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, and Martin Luther King that had made the gay movement possible. And therefore, it felt uncannily right that the arc of history had bent so dramatically toward liberty and justice for all during Barack Obama's presidency. It made a kind of cosmic sense that a black man was president of the United States when marriage equality became the law of the land, especially because, you know, even in the case of marriage equality at every stage of the gay movement, but including the battle in the courts for gay equality, the women lawyers who led the movement to get those decisions modeled their strategy explicitly on what had been done to get rid of the laws which banned interracial marriages at the beginning of the 1960s. So really at every stage. But we must always remember that the greatest progress was achieved for us by Barack Hussein Obama. He's a crucial figure. And to get back to Frank Kameny, who is my personal hero of this movement, the first thing Obama does when he's been in the White House for six months is have some kind of gay event, and he invites Frank Kameny to the White House. He greets him as a fellow Harvard alum, and he gives him the pen that he's used to sign some new executive order, modestly extending the rights of gay people. And I called Frank the next day and said, how does it feel, Frank, this man who had led a lonely picket line of 11 people outside the White House in 1965? And Frank said, I feel like the frog who turned into the prince. Frank Kameny was always great. He was cantankerous, but he was great for putting um, moments into um, special context. Let me talk to you, since you brought up President Obama and marriage equality becoming the law of the land on his watch. I mean, there was the Lawrence decision, the Windsor decision, and the Obergefell decision, each of them written by now former Justice Anthony Anthony Kennedy. And particularly in Lawrence, um, and I don't know if you remember where you were that day that that decision came down, but I would love to get your thoughts on what you read in that decision. For me, it was the first time that I had read a a Supreme Court decision where my humanity as a gay person was not only validated, but championed, that my life was given the dignity and respect it deserved from the highest court in the land. That was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. Your thoughts? Yes, language matters, and the language of those decisions, especially when uh, when they overturned the Bowers decision, the language was extremely strong, and it's 
he said, it suffices us for to acknowledge that adults may choose to enter upon this relationship in the confines of their homes and their own private lives and still retain their dignity as free persons. When homosexual conduct is made criminal by the law of the state, that declaration in and of itself is an invitation to subject homosexual persons to discrimination both in the public and private spheres. This was a truly revolutionary notion. For more than 200 years, it had been the law's presumption that homosexuals deserved society's opprobrium because of his obviously immoral behavior. Now the court had found that the liberty the Constitution guaranteed for every citizen gave the government an affirmative obligation to eliminate any law to increase the chances that gay people might be discriminated against. So it was incredibly important to have the Supreme Court come down on the right side three times in a row, and Kennedy's language is elegant and beautiful and has changed, helped to change the course of American history. You know, Molly Ivan said you can view the whole history of America as one long effort to extend the guarantees of the Constitution to everyone. And certainly, we have made more progress in that direction for both black people and LGBTQ people during the last 50 years than I think we have in any other period. So I think it's important to remember that with all of our other travails, with all the catastrophes we face from this administration in Washington right now, looking back as a whole, we have lived above all in a period of liberation. Well, since you brought up this this current administration, I was going to ask this later, but I'll ask you now, how dangerous do you think the Trump administration is to LGBT rights and equality? Well, I think it's a certain, obviously the biggest threat that we've faced in uh, many years. I think its policy on trans people is particularly egregious and disgusting. I mean, here we had thousands of extremely capable, competent trans soldiers and sailors who are now being run out of the military just to satisfy the prejudices of Trump's right-wing supporters, uh, and though we have on a more trivial but still important symbolic level, we have an order from the State Department that no American embassy is allowed to raise the rainbow flag this month. And it's interesting that many Foreign Service officers considered that order so outrageous that they're just disobeying it. Your own newspaper, The Washington Post, mm-hmm. had a story about this a day or two ago. Mm-hmm. Um, But there was also this unbelievably hideous memo from the Department of Health and Human Services proposing a policy that would basically write trans people out of existence in terms of the way the government uh, considered them and that everyone's gender would be determined by the way they were born and confirmed by DNA tests. I mean, it was just a complete horrendous move backward. Uh, You have to remember that Mike Pence is someone with as bad a record on all of these issues as any other American politician. And his people are clearly pushing the main uh, acts of this administration. And then you have, of course, dozens and dozens of hideously unqualified people being appointed to the federal bench who are not only wrong on LGBT rights, these are people who won't even say in public, yes, I believe Brown versus 
Board of Education was the right decision. So, you know, we're trying – these people are trying to push us backward as quickly and horribly as they can, and the only solution is to get rid of all of them at the ballot box in 2020. Well, Charlie, with um, given what you just said, with, with all the progress that that the LGBTQ community has made – Right on up to marriage equality. I mean, we have seen a big backlash. You talked a lot about what President Trump has done. We've got bathroom bills in the states, RIFRA bills and laws in the states. Um, gay people, as uh, Congressman David Cicilline of Rhode Island likes to say, you can get married on Saturday, put post your things on Instagram on Sunday, and be fired from your job or lose your home on Monday because um, – Sexual orientation and gender identity are not protected under uh, from discrimination under federal law. All that to say, Charlie, do you think we as the LGBTQ community, did we push too hard for equality and that this is the backlash that we're getting as a result? No, I think we're very close to I mean, you have to remember that the House of Representatives just a couple of weeks ago passed the Equality Act, Mm -hmm. which was an incredible piece of progress. And it is not the least bit inconceivable that we could take back the Senate next year and take back the White House. And that Equality Act would become the law of the land. Something that's particularly striking to me, which one of the ACLU lawyers pointed out to me, is that abortion – more than 30 years, almost 40 years after Roe v. Wade remains one of the number one hot button issues in America, more so, I think, and he thinks, than marriage equality does just, you know, five years, six years after the decision came down. I I think that marriage equality is more the accepted law of a land than the right to abortion is and that suggests uh, a remarkable degree of progress. But it doesn't mean that we can sit back, obviously, because there is, as you described it, there are many efforts to push things back. But I think the biggest thing we have on our side, and this is something that the Republicans realize because that's why they're so desperately working on every kind of voter suppression scheme they can come up with, uh, demographics are, are on are dramatically are on our side. Every generation of Americans since World War II has been more accepting of difference than the generation that came before them. The latest poll shows that the youngest voters are the most liberal that there have ever been. And the oldest generation of prejudiced people is dying off. So I think the trend lines are all in our favor. We just have to hold on during this terrible 18-month period and try to restore the rule of law and take the government back. I would hazard a guess, Charlie, that you never thought in a million years that um, marriage equality would become the law of the land. But did you think um, that we would be in this moment in time uh, on the precipice of a, of a presidential election where one of the myriad candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination who's in the top tier is an openly gay married man from the Midwest, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. No, it's, I think it's remarkable. It's fabulous. I've reviewed uh, Mayor Pete's book, which is extremely interesting and 
well done. He's obviously one of the most intelligent candidates we've ever had for president. And as Colbert said back in January, when he did the Late Show back in January, Colbert said the remarkable thing about him is the fact that he's gay is only the third thing you learn about him. And I was interviewing Barney Frank at Hunter College about a month ago, and Barney thought that clearly his early success was partly because he was gay. He wouldn't have gotten this much attention if there wasn't something unique about him. Uh, and yet it hardly seems – I think it, on, it's a net-net. It's going to be a big advantage for him because I think it makes him more attractive to younger voters – he seems to be extremely effective and attractive to women voters. Uh, and no, I did not think that this could have happened in 2020. But the fact that he is, you know, seems to be the favorite candidate of uh, Morning Joe and Mika is a pretty remarkable thing all by itself. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's, I just think it's wonderful to have someone so broad and intelligent in the mm -hmm. mix. I mean, I, I love Elizabeth Warren, too, and I love Kamala, and I think we're very lucky to have so many smart candidates with real new ideas, but I have to be for Pete because he's one of us. Well, let me ask you, is, is America ready for a gay president, openly gay president with a husband? I think America is ready for an openly gay president. My theory is that if George Bush too was bad enough to make our first African-American president possible, Donald Trump is certainly horrendous enough to make the first openly gay president possible. And I think that uh, Ripshaw effect is entirely within our grasp. Yeah, no, I think he can be elected. I really do. Oh, Charlie, that that's <laughs> I have to let out this laugh. That that actually is. Um, an, an excellent point. Charlie, I want to I close out by um, asking you two final questions. One, um, are there any lessons from, from the Stonewall riots 50 years ago that you think we need to emulate today? Sure. Fight back. Stand up. Be true to yourself. Um, come out as early as you can. Uh, find the candidates at every level of government who are supportive of equality for everyone, and not just sexual equality, but economic equality. I think one of the most important things for the next stage of the gay movement is for us to make more alliances with the rest of the progressive movement. I think Gays Against Guns is a wonderful development. I think the kids from the high schools which have been attacked who are now leading the fight against Gun laws is, are also a wonderful development. Progressives are in the majority. We proved that in 2016 when more people voted for Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. And we certainly proved that in 2018 with this huge blue wave that restored the House to democratic control. So we have to remember that we are the majority, but we have to have as much energy and organization as the right wing has had for the last 40 years. Otherwise, we will lose our democracy at the ballot box. And on this 50th anniversary of Stonewall, Charlie, aside from Frank Kameny, who are your heroes who you'd like to acknowledge on this anniversary? Well... I had a secret um, 
subtext when I started the research for this book when I was in my 40s, and I wanted to find older gay men who had figured out how to grow old and stay happy and productive and involved. And the two who were most important to me were Arthur Lawrence, who wrote Gypsy and West Side Story and The Way We Were, and most of all, Paul Cadmus, the painter, who was just the most decent, generous, magnificent man I've ever known. And he is someone who I aspire to being as much like as I possibly can. I don't come anywhere close to succeeding, but it's still a goal to, as one of his friends said, uh, he thought it was never appropriate to uh, be uh, take offend anybody else, really. Well, obviously, that hasn't been my point of view, but he was just, <laughs> he was a wonderful guy. Um, Barbara Giddings was a very important person. There's such a long list of important people, but nobody is at the same. And Jack Nichols, who is Frank Kameny's co-founder of the uh, Mattachine Society. And I think really we have to add with what Jack Nichols and his lover, Leish Clark, wrote after the Stonewall riot. They were the first gay reporters to write about the Stonewall riot, and they said the revolution in Sheridan Square must step beyond its present boundaries the homosexual revolution is only part of a larger revolution sweeping through all segments of society. We hope gay power will not become a call for separation but for sexual integration that the young activists will read, study, make themselves acquainted with all of the facts that will help them carry the sexual revolt triumphantly into the councils of the U.S. government, into the anti-homosexual churches, into the offices of anti-homosexual psychiatrists, into the city government and the state legislatures which make our manner of lovemaking a crime. It is time to push the homosexual revolution to its logical conclusion. We must crush tyranny wherever it exists and join forces with those who would assist in the utter destruction of the puritanical repressive anti-sexual establishment. They wrote that in 1969, and I wrote, all of their dreams were about to come true. Charles Kaiser, author of The Gay Metropolis, The Landmark History of Gay Life in America. Thank you very much for being on this special edition of K-Pop. Thank you, Jonathan. A great pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hey, it's Hannah Sampson again. If you like to travel... The Washington Post has a new digital destination just for you. By the Way features local guides to the cities you want to see and tips to help you make the most of every journey. Find out about the best restaurants, parks, and more from the people who really know where to go. Check it out and sign up for our weekly newsletter at WashingtonPost.com travel. See you there.